Well, this morning we are looking at Joshua 10 through 12, chapters 10 through 12. You have uh, had a good uh, introduction by uh, Jared and Sam as to why God is acting the way he did because of the sin of the Amorites. And so therefore he's bringing judgment upon them. And you know that God hates sin, but it seems that he hates idolatry the most. Those, uh, these people are idol worshipers, and uh, as we've seen in uh, Jericho, they had chosen to remain as idol worshipers rather than to turn to the true God as Rachel did, or Rahab, excuse me, Rahab. And so God is bringing judgment upon them. And uh, just thinking about idolatry, you know, it just caused me to pause and wonder, what kind of idols do I have that I think about rather than serving God? Uh, it's a slippery slope to draw into idolatry. So God judges sin. Now, as we go through this, you're going to hear repeated several times that everybody was destroyed, that the army killed everybody. They went into the to the cities and killed everybody. And the question that comes to my mind, did they really kill everybody? Because it seems like as we go on in the scriptures, and especially in uh, Judges, and all the way up until the time of Solomon, that there's plenty of people yet to plague the people and to cause them trouble, that subdue the Israelites time and time again, especially during the time period of the judges. And so, were all of them killed? Well, as I think about, thought about this, it seems that probably, and it's just, you have to take this with a grain of salt, this is just my musings, that probably not everybody was killed. And I'm thinking that it was mostly those that resisted. In other words, when an army came against them or when they joined in battle, they killed the majority of those people from the army, but I'm sure that some of them escaped, and there may have been some that surrendered. And uh, common practice throughout history of armies is when somebody surrenders to you, you don't kill them, and you keep them alive. But, of course, God's instruction to them was to kill them, so probably they did. I don't know. And then also, they they made war against the fortified cities and conquered them and destroyed them and killed everybody there. But possibly the small villages around that were exempt, were, were not attacked. And I, I'm thinking that possibly there were those that were left alive in the countryside. Uh, as we go through this, there was only one place that they actually mentioned that they uh, killed the people in the villages that were associated with that strong city. And so it seems to me that there must have been people left because, again, especially in the book of Judges, we see that there are people that are still living in the country that are troublesome to the Israelites. And an example of that is Hebron. As we go through this passage, you will see in uh, chapter 11 that the city of Hebron is attacked, destroyed, and specifically they kill the Amalekites, uh, the sons of Anak there. 
And, um, but yet then in chapter 15, where they are making division of the land, giving the portion of each tribe, we see Caleb coming to Joshua and saying, I want the city of Hebron. And Joshua says, okay, you've got it. And so Caleb takes his plan, and they have to fight against the city of Hebron. So what's the deal here? I thought they already conquered that. Well, one uh, commentator suggested that possibly what we have here is in chapter 11, you have the summary, and then in chapter 15, you have a more complete explanation of what happened, that possibly when the Israelite army attacked Hebron in chapter 11, Caleb was given uh, that responsibility to do so. And you have other examples of that type of thing in Scripture. In Genesis, we read that God created man and woman on the sixth day. And then after that, then you have a fuller explanation of how he did that. And so that, it, it is possible that that is what happened. I'm thinking that something else happened. I'm told that this whole chapters 10 through 11, or 12, took about seven years. And it seems that during that time, the Israelites weren't occupying all of the land. They were just staying in their camp. And so the possibly after Hebron had, Hebron had been destroyed or uh, uh, conquered in chapter 11, then dur- during that seven-year period, peoples moved back in that had escaped or uh, somehow evaded uh, being killed earlier. And then Caleb had to go in and reconquer it, so to speak. So anyway, those are my, my thoughts on how that all plays out. And so God judges sin, and so this chapters 10 through 12 is God judging sin. But I believe there's also a, I mean, there obviously is also a second aspect of it, is God is giving them the land. God gave them the land, but they have to take it. And so we have God judging the inhabitants of the land, and then also God giving the land to the Israelites. Now, this idea of God giving, but yet they had to take it, reminds me of my youth. The church that I grew up in, the pastor would often demonstrate salvation by calling one of us kids up to the front, and he would offer us a small coin. And he would uh, then ask us, do you have the coin? And, of course, we'd say, no, we don't have the coin yet. And it would be a little back and forth to point out that salvation is offered, but we have to receive it. And so until we receive it, it's not ours. But yet it's there, and God has offered it. And so then we would eventually be given the coin, and then we would say that, yes, now we have the coin. And uh, so that was his way of uh, showing how God works in salvation. And so that's how it's working here. God has given it to them, but yet they have to take it. And so now let's go through it. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. 
As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Horam, king of Hebron, to Parim, king of Jermoth, to Joppa, king of Lachish, and to Debar, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. I believe that uh, the king of Jerusalem has got uh, two aims here. First of all, I believe it's to punish any city that would make peace with Israel and thereby warning others that might be tempted to do the same thing, saying, if you make peace with these guys, we're going to come and destroy you. And so therefore persuading them to not do like Gibeon has done. But also, perhaps he feared that the Gibeonites would join forces with the Israelites to fight against them. And so rather than wait till he had to face both of them together, take one at a time and hopefully be victorious. Well, we're going to see that it, he wasn't. Verses 10, uh, 16, 6 through 15. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. Possibly in the agreement that the Gibeonites had with Israel was a mutual self-defense pact. I, I don't know. It doesn't tell us that. But obviously Joshua <clears throat> comes to the raid. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them, suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Haran, and struck them as far as Azka and Mekdah. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azka, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with a sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set about for a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Now I hope you notice that three times it tells us in that passage that the Lord fought for Israel. 
The Lord threw them into a panic. The Lord threw down large stones. The Lord fought for Israel. God has given them the land. He expects them to take it, but he helps them take it. He doesn't leave them on their own. I often wonder, how did God lengthen that day? Did he just stop the earth's rotation? And uh, when you think about that, at least I do, I think about inertia. You know, when you hit the brakes on your car real fast, what happens? Everything in the car wants to go forward. Kids, coffee cup, whatever, goes forward. Well, just think about the whole earth suddenly stopping. All of the trees and rocks and water and people wanting to go forward. Well, God would have to hold them all in place. Amazing. You know, God, of course, can do that. I mean, after all, he spoke the world into existence, so he can definitely hold everything in place. (laughs) Not a problem. Or did he stop the whole universe? You know, I don't know what it would do, you know, in uh, the science of the cosmos, If the earth stopped rotating, how would that affect the rest of the cosmos? I don't know. So maybe that would be a big issue. So why not just stop the whole thing? He could do that too if he wanted to. But anyway, somehow he stopped the earth's rotation and the sun stood still. God is marvelous. The power, the immense power, unbelievable power that it would have taken to do that. But here's the thing. Sure, God can stop the sun from going down. But the writer takes special note. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man. When the Lord heeded the voice of a man. That's what's really spectacular. The fact that God heard and acted on behalf of a man. Now, actually, this isn't the only time this has ever happened. (laughs) God heard and acted on behalf of Abraham and Isaac and uh, others in the Old Testament time and time again. He heard Moses in the wilderness time and time again. God has acted on before on men's behalf that have prayed to him. But isn't it miraculous? Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it incomprehensible that God does hear and answer our prayers? Now, you know, thinking just about myself, I've grown up all my life praying. Of course, I probably pray more now than I used to, but the... The fact of having that opportunity of prayer is commonplace. I mean, it's just like my relationship with my wife. I expect to be able to talk to her. And if I ask for biscuits and gravy for breakfast, she does it. You know, it just happens. Um, The But the fact that God hears us. And you know, the... I mean, just, it just, I mean, it boggles my mind, really, when I stop and think about it. 
He hears us when we speak out loud, and he hears us when we just think it. Not only does he hear me, he also hears you (laughs) and all the millions others that are praying. How does he do that? I mean, sure, I can understand him stopping the earth from rotating, but how does he hear all of that and act upon it, too? God hears and acts upon our prayers. It's wonderful. Now, if you notice there, Joshua's prayer was kind of poetic. Sun stands still at Gibeon and the moon in the valley of Agilon. Now, I would have just prayed, God, give us more daylight so we can get this job done. <laughs> That's how I would have prayed. Uh, but uh, it's kind of poetic there. And I'm sure he said it out loud because it says that he said it before the, 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 the Israelites, they, so they heard him. So he, he said it out loud. But it doesn't have to be out loud. It doesn't have to be poetic. A heartfelt prayer. But, you know, I think it does take some faith that God will hear us and answer us. We have to be thinking about that. And then, also, in this particular case, it was clear that Joshua's prayer was in accordance with the will of God. What had God already told him to do? Subdue this land, kill these people. And so, they are doing it, and the prayer supports that aim that God has to judge these people by killing them. And so, our prayers need to be in line with God's will. Now, I'll have to admit, I don't always know God's particular will in a particular instance. So I just go ahead and ask anyway. And I, that's the best I know how to do. But then I, I will submit to God's will, obviously. So prayer. Prayer is the thing. There's no day like it before when God heeded the voice of a man. But yet we know that there's days like it every day. Because God does hear and answer our prayers today. Verses 16 through 21. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Mekdah. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Mekdah. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men to guard it, by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies, attack the rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Mekdah. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. And, Thinking back to what I said in the introduction, you notice that uh, phrase there, until they were wiped out and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into fortified cities. So right here we have a case where it says everybody was killed, but yet some of them got to escaped into the fortified cities. So, uh, well, we'll move on. 22 through 27. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring these five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so, and brought those five kings out to him from the cave. And the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jeremoth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. 
And when they brought these kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And when they came near and put their feet on their necks, and Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees. And they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into a cave where they had hidden themselves. And they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remained there to this very day. So the constant message that God has is, be strong and be courageous. And Joshua is transferring that message on to the leaders of his army, saying, be strong and courageous. This is God's word. This is what God has instructed us. And by putting their feet on the necks of these men, or these kings, it shows that they have been subdued by them. And it encourages their hearts to know that God is with them and they are encouraged to be strong and courageous in going ahead and following and obeying God's command, God's will. Twenty-eight through thirty-nine. As for Mechdah, Joshua captured it on the, captured it on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining. And they did <clears throat> to the king of Mechdah just as they had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed from Mechdah to Lebanon and fought against Lebanon. And the Lord gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel. And he struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it. He left none remaining. And he did to it to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel passed on from Lebanon to Lachish and laid siege to it and fought against it. And the Lord gave Lachish into the hand of Israel, and he captured it on the second day, and struck it with the edge of the sword, every person in it, as he had done to Lebanon. The king, then Horam, king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish, and Joshua struck him and his people until he left none remaining. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Lachish to Eglon, and they laid siege to it and fought against it, and they captured it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword. Then he devoted every person in it to destruction that day as he had done to Lachish. Then Joshua and all Israel went with him from Eglon to Hebron, and they fought against it and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and its kings and its town and every person in it. He left none remaining as he had done to Eglon and devoted it to destruction and every person in it. Then Joshua and all Israel then turned back to Debar and fought against it, and he captured it with its king and it, all its towns, and they struck them with the edge of the sword and devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining, just as he had done to Hebron and to Lebanon and its king. So he did to Deber and its king. So after defeating the armies in the field, they then turned to go to all the different fortified cities and they captured them. And you saw there that they fought against it and captured it and... Uh, and killed the people therein. 40 through 43. So Joshua struck the whole land and the hill country and the Negev and the lowland and the slopes and their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God had commanded. 
And Joshua struck from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all their kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Again, here you see it repeated that they were able to do this because the Lord God fought for them. And so this is what we call the southern campaign. When, uh, when Joshua and the Israelites entered into the, the land, they first conquered Jericho and Ai, which were in the central portion. And now they have gone south because of the attack against Gibeon and, and defeated all the kings there. And now they're going to go up to the north part. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. When Jabin, king of Hazar, heard of this, he went, sent to Jabin, king of Madon, and to the king of Simron, and to the king of Ashpash, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, in the Arabah south of Chinnereth, and in the lowland, in Napath, door of the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Harmon in the land of Mizpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde, in the number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Miram to fight against Israel. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give them over to them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Miram and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as the great Sidon, Misrapith, Miam, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. So these northern kings form an alliance just like the southern kings did. And it says that they were like the sands of the sea. So in other words, there was a bunch of them. And not only that, they come to, to, to them with the very best in modern warfare at that time, which was horses and chariots. It is extremely hard for infantry <clears throat> to stand against cavalry charge. The cavalry comes in and is able to just run right over them. And then that breaks up their formation so that then the, other, the opposing army can come in and fight effectively against the infantry. So this was a, a, a very hard situation, but you see, God fought for them again, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. And so God was there, and he did it, and they were able to, to win the battle, regardless of those chariots and horses. 16 through 20. So Joshua took all the land, the hill country, and the Negev, and all the land of Goshen, and the lowland, of the, and the Arabah, and the hill country of Israel, and its lowlands from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, as far as Belagad, in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Harmon, and he captured all their kings, and struck them, and put them to death. Joshua made, a, made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel, except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took all of them in battle, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed, 
just as the Lord commanded Moses. Just as God hardened the heart of Pharaoh so that he didn't turn loose the Israelites until God had brought his judgments upon Egypt, God has hardened the hearts of these kings in the whole land of Canaan so that they might be devoted to destruction just as he has decided. 21 through 23. And Joshua came upon them at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debor, from Anab, and all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the hand of in the land of the people of Israel, only in Gaza and Gath, and in Asherah did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoke to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest for more. Now chapter 12, I'm not going to read chapter 12. You can thank me later for that. Just lives, gives a list of the different kings that were defeated by the Israelites. Uh, under Moses' leadership, two were defeated. Under Joshua's leadership, 31 were defeated. So, the title of the message was, God Gives the Victory. We saw how God gave the victory to the Israelites there in the land. And so here's the application for us. Jesus gives us victory. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 through 58. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. God has given us the victory through Jesus Christ. The preceding verses to this speak about the fact that these mortal bodies that we have are going to be changed into immortal bodies. These bodies of sin cannot stand before God, and so he's going to give us better immortal bodies that can stand before him. And he has made that promise to change us. And so there is victory over sin and death. In this body, sin seems to have more control than we would ever want it to have. As, as uh, the writer in Romans and, and, and uh, later says that our desire is to serve God and to, to not sin, but yet sin seems to have that control over us. Unfortunately, even though God has given us a new nature, we still have that old nature. And it sometimes, oftentimes, wins out and we sin. But the, our aim should be to, re, to live in that victory that God has given to us over sin. But we, it's not through our own strength that we do that. We have to depend and trust upon Him and have His help that we can have this victory. The victory is there, but we have to accept it. We have to take it. We have to live in it. And in this verse, there's one of those therefores. And you know that whenever you see the the therefore, you need to pay attention and listen. 
And so the what we're supposed to do, because of we have this victory, we're to be steadfast, immovable, and abounding in the work of the Lord. Being steadfast, I think being steadfast in our walk, that we don't go into sin, immovable in our following the Lord, and then abounding in work that is pleasing to God rather than pleasing to our bodies, to ourselves. 1 John 5, 1 through 5. Everyone who, who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Again here we're told that we already have the victory. And it's given to us because of our faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And so we need to look to Jesus constantly to accept and to live in that victory that he has already won for us. Christ has defeated sin in the grave. Christ has given us new life. He's given us a new man, a new nature. And so we need to live in that victory that he has already given to us. And we need to remember that we're not going to overcome the world in our strength. It is only through our faith in him that we're able to overcome. And what is this overcoming the world? Well, earlier in uh, 1 John, it talks about the world being equal to the flesh, the fleshly desires. What is our fleshly desires? We, can, we have overcome them through Christ. But unfortunately, again, we allow that old sin nature to build up those fleshly desires. And oftentimes when you hear that word fleshly desires, you might think of sexual sin, but there's so much more. The love of money, love of power, love of honor, love of esteem, all these things that are what? Idolatry. We need to avoid idolatry and only have one thing, one person that we worship, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray.